this morning. Help me to um, share the share the gospel, Lord. Help me to be faithful to to the words of the scriptures, and and help me to point toward you um, in everything this morning, Lord. I pray that um, there'd be no distractions, nothing drawing us away from you, nothing nothing that keeps us from uh, just focusing on on your Son and your glory. Um, pray that you be with the folks who are here today. Help help them to hear from you. I pray that you would uh, break through any fog or any any worry, any any preoccupation with the clutter and the, the the noise of the season, Lord, and help us just to just to focus on Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> when I was in high school, I uh, I I owned several suits, which is a, a somewhat rare thing for a high school kid, I think. And I owned a lot of ties, and I I actually learned how to tie uh, three different versions of tie knots. I can tie the regular one and the double Windsor and the half Windsor. I, I learned that. And, and I think actually the first time I ever asked a girl out on a date, I, I, wore, I wore a suit that day because it was like a job interview. Um, and and you got to put your best foot forward. Plus, like, like when you look like this, you need something to draw the eyes down. Uh, and I, 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 I did it because, you know, um, when you I don't know. There's this 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 attitude in our culture. You want to put the best foot forward when you're when you're trying to sell something, right? You know, I, I Jess and I looked at cars, and it was amazing how often uh, people were selling cars did not, you know, like they, they would wash them and they would detail them and they would make sure they looked as nice as possible. And actually, we looked at a few cars where the dealership hadn't gotten to that, and it's really revealing the difference between a detailed and undetailed car. Um, and then I, you know, I mean, I, we, we, we like pretty and polished and perfect, don't we? Um, and, and, um, this is my, my example. I'm wearing my, my suit today. And like when somebody, you know, I don't know about y'all, when I talk to a guy in a suit, I, I take them seriously. Right. I mean, there's kind of this air of, except for today, <laughs> someone was about to say it. I think it was John. I'm, I'm pretty sure I heard it coming from over there. Uh, <laughs> Um, not that I've ever been heckled by a Durga before, uh, but but you know we we live in a culture where there's there's a great deal of polish and we we put a lot of stock in that. And it's actually one of the things I love about Montana is you know when I interviewed here, like I put on a suit to go around and do my first round of like interviews, and Larry turned me around. We were staying at his house. He said you should go change out of that. Like you you should not you should not visit with folks dressed like that because Montana is a little more laid back, right? Um, which I very much appreciate, and I love you all for it, um, amongst other things. Um, but in our culture, I mean, we, we buy into this. We like, I, I read recently that um, Americans are more likely to see a beautiful person as trustworthy. Like, if they see somebody who's attractive and they see somebody who's unattractive, they're more likely to believe the attractive person, even if they're saying the same thing. Um, we, we are so focused on appearance in our culture that, um, like, we even, I, I, I was reading this week about, about, you know, clothing, and, like, we have style guides for dressing like you're not dressing up, you know, or more expensive version of not dressed up clothing, like, because there's so much emphasis placed on, it, on appearance, and it, I mean, I guess it makes sense, we're not a radio culture, right, we're a TV culture, we're a magazine culture, we're a pictures and everything else. And like as we dive into our text today, um, the reason I'm starting with this is um, like as we go into Christmas especially, man, 
what you see is a big deal, isn't it? Um, I, 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 we don't wrap packages in brown paper, right? We don't, um, you know, we don't put up the dead tree. We, we put up something nice with lights and tinsel. I mean, like, like we're very much, appearance is huge. Um, and, and it's easy to forget that, that um, God starts us in a very different place. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 52 and 53 today. Right? We're actually only going to do half of it. When I was taking notes and I got to the point that I had 15 pages of notes, I said, let's cut this, this thing in half. So we're going to do two sermons on Isaiah 52 and 53. And <laughs> so this will be a shorter sermon than normal. Your, your yay was late. Um, <laughs> so the series so far, <laughs> the series so far, um, what we've been doing is we've been doing like uh, talking about this idea that that um, Christmas is different. It's not what we expect it to be. It's not what the culture makes it into. Christmas is this set apart, huge deal. It is kind of um, between Christmas and Easter, we see the cornerstone of human history and the cornerstone of God's plan for salvation for the world. And so we've looked at various verses that like and passages that emphasize that. And right now we're going to be looking at. Like Isaiah, like I said, 52 and 53. Now, real quick, 49 to 53. And next year, I think we're going to do like just these verses. 49 to 53 will be the sermon series for next year. There are four songs that Isaiah wrote and put in this book, the, the servant songs. This one is the last one. It's the one that's actually most quoted in the New Testament. It's the most quoted section of Scripture in the New Testament. I think 11 times this like like eight verses is quoted. Um, and, and so like, like um, there's a lot of material here, especially as it relates to Christmas. Um, and the whole thing, the whole chunk of text um, relates to um, like this big emphasis on God's estrangement from man. Um, and I was going to, I didn't include it in my slides, and so I actually got to just read it to you. Um, from Genesis 3, um, right after the fall of man, we all know this story, Right? Um, Adam and Eve, God creates them, he puts them in the garden, um, and they're given one rule. You had one job, and what was it? Don't eat off the tree. It's not farming. <laughs> Thank Good guess, though. Um, that was a Montana answer. Um, now, here's the question. Why on earth did God put the tree there? Because he had to put it somewhere, right? Well, no, he didn't, right? Like, he's God. He could do whatever he want. Like, like, why did he put a tree there that, that had a rule attached? I mean, if the rule was, like, eat anything you want, take care of the garden, lord over the earth. This is your domain, but don't eat off that one tree. That's weird, isn't it? Now, watch this. Here's my guess. And I'm, I'm going to admit this is a guess, okay? So, like, like, you don't have to take it as gospel truth. But um, my guess is um, that Adam and Eve needed a choice. Um, and they needed a choice because, um, because you can't really love someone if you can't choose to not love them. Does that make sense? Um, like like the, the ultimate like, like, like thing when you find a, 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 a wife or a husband like my wife, I, I cannot believe that she decided to marry me, and I can't believe she's decided to stay with me as long as she has, right? And she has a choice. 
Like, but she has chosen to, like, be my wife. I mean, like, we have this choice that we make. If you take the tree away, Adam and Eve are given everything, and they have no option to reject God, right? And so, like, they are given a choice. And, and God created the world because God is love, right? Like, God is loving. And you can't just be loving without something to love, right? And so, like, love has to be directed at something. And so God is this creating God because he is a loving God, and he creates things, and he loves them, and he has relationships with them. And it's awesome. It's one of the reasons why God is, like, so fantastic and wonderful because um, – God is, God is loving. He's engaging. Um, so he creates Adam and Eve. They screw up. They eat off the tree that they're not supposed to eat off of. And we have one line, and we're going to um, – it's like one sentence here. Um, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. Um, there's one of those verses of scriptures that has, like, it never jumped out at me until about 10 years ago, and it has jumped out at me over and over again. I, I love it. God is walking in the cool of the day, and the implication is that he is, like, doing something that he does all the time, right? Like, the Hebrew carries the weight of this is a recurring thing because God would spend time with his people. And actually, there's so much weight attached to this text that gets brushed over very quickly often that, like, like the, the scripture writers, like, that's a sign that you are doing the right thing. Um, he walked with God, right? You all have heard this phrase before, right? Like, because the prophets use it and the New Testament uses it because walking with God means to be in right relationship with God. And it's all kind of echoing off of this. Like, to be in right relationship with God is, to, is to, to walk with him. Now, Isaiah, over and over again, like this broken relationship, right? Because all of a sudden Adam and Eve can't walk with God. Um, suddenly God is in this position where, like, people are sinful and they have to hide from him. God speaks and the earth shakes, right? Moses, um, there's all these instances where Moses talks to God and he comes away from talking with God and he, like, glows like a light bulb, right? And all the other prophets used to laugh and call him names. Um, I will, I'm sorry, that was horrible. Um, actually, they didn't call him names. They couldn't stop staring at him. And so he had to wear a veil to cover up the glory of God as it shone off him. Because it was like God is so glorious that if you come too near him, it rubs off on you, right? Like, and, and there's this distance between God and man that is not what he intended in the creation. God's intent was to be in relationship with his people. So the first three verses, the first three songs, songs uh, servant songs here, starting in 49 up to 52 – emphasize the fact that God's people are estranged from him, that God's people have you know, drifted away, that they don't walk with him anymore. And over and over and over again in those songs, it talks about God's like desire to bring them back and the need for them to come back to him and how important it would be for them to like, like be in relationship with him. But there's this problem, and that problem is sin. Right? Sin has created this distance. And so God's solution, which is why this is such a big deal, and we're going to do, there are two halves to this discussion. Again, um, we're going to be doing, like God's solution is introduced here in Isaiah 52 and 53. I'm going to read the verses we're going to look at today before we dive into them, because I think it's important to hear them in their entirety, or the half that we're doing in their entirety. This is starting in verse 13, and we're going to go to verse 3 of 53. 
See, my servant will act wise. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled by him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle the nations, and the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what, for what they have not, for what, excuse me. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He will grow up before him like a tender shoot. Like, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract to us. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And we despised and rejected by... And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering, like one whom men hide their, from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So that's the, the chunk of text we're looking at, and we're going to dive into it. Oh, my gosh, it all just went away. Are you messing with my slides? Um, I'm going to have to talk up the book. Um, Nope, it's coming back. It's just not cooperating. I hate technology. Um, so verse 13. Um, real quick, right out of the gate, what we get out of verse 13 is the idea that um, that the servant will act wisely, um, like he is going to be successful. The phrase there, he will act wisely, like, like the Hebrew is a little funny, and it's one of those passages that's not real well translated, like anywhere. The idea behind it is um, that he will act so wisely that his success in his endeavor will be, like, assured. Or he will be successful, like, purely based on his wisdom. Right, So Isaiah opens this passage, like this song, with the idea that God's servant is coming and God's servant will be successful. Like it is going oh, – there it is. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And again, the idea is he'll be successful because of the wisdom. Um, he shall be high and lifted up um, and shall be exalted. Now, high and lifted up. Y'all are familiar with this, right? You probably know it from a song. Um, high and lifted up is only used by Isaiah as a phrase in the entire scriptures, like, like old Testament, excuse me. We only see Isaiah use the phrase high and lifted up and he only uses it four other times. And watch this in every, every instance, he is referring to God himself. We only see the phrase as a reference to God himself. So Isaiah is tipping his hand up front, right? That the servant has some sort of inner connection with God, right? Like the servant of the Lord is actually the Lord himself. Like Jesus is the son of God. And he comes um, and he'll be exalted. He'll be lifted up, which is another thing. We do not ever see in the Old Testament where God is all about exalting men, right? Like because, and, and really, if you hear a preacher that tells you about how awesome you are, and about how God is here to make sure that you, like, reach your ultimate glorious thing, you need to turn that guy off and stop listening to him, right? Because God is about his own exaltation. It's not because he's arrogant, it's because he deserves it. Does that make sense? I mean, did you ever meet um, someone who was, uh, like, like, truly beautiful, like, stunning, but could not say a nice thing about how they looked, or had, like, a great personality and could not, like, acknowledge that they were a nice person? 
Like, and you say, well, we should say that you are. We should say that God is like that. God is so amazing. He's the creator of all things. He is the designer of all things. He is so deserving of glory. And God doesn't share this, right? He gives us the ability to appreciate it and be in relationship with him, which is why God is awesome. But he doesn't share. And so when we say, like, high and lifted up, verse to reference to God, and shall be exalted is also a reference to God. Now, here's the other thing. When Jesus is born, because this is talking about Jesus. Like, I'm going to give you the, the hint up front, right? Is Jesus born exalted? Any guesses? He does die on the cross, which actually is even worse. Like, like being born in a barn isn't very good. I mean, in Montana, it might be a, you know, a pedigree thing. But, like, in the ancient world, it wasn't something to brag about. It didn't make you, it didn't make you um, royalty, right? Royalty was not born in barns. Um, and so, like, like, the fact that, you know, Jesus is showing up, it is as low as it's going to get. Like, and then throughout his life, even being crucified, crucifixion was the death, like, that was suffered by um, a hated man or, like, a criminal. I mean, it was a commoner death. Um, in fact, Roman citizens couldn't even be crucified. It was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen because it was considered to be the worst thing you could do. Um, and so, like, like... The Son of God stands in the opposite place. Um, 14 and 15 really go together, but we're going to do them in bits here, and we're going to come back and forth between them. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. We're going to pause mid-sentence. Now watch this. He's going to talk about two groups that are astonished, that are amazed. And if we're thinking of amazed by God, what do we think about? I think about the mountains, right? How many of y'all wander out? Actually, how many of y'all saw the sunrise this morning? It was an exceptional sunrise. Like, it was one of those moments that you look at it and you just got to pause for a few minutes and appreciate how grand God's design is. And, like, when we think of astonishment as it relates to God, that's what we think. But Isaiah goes in a different direction, and he blocks off two groups of people, and the first one are the people who are astonished by his appearance. It was marred beyond human semblance, meaning, like, when Jesus ultimately, like, receives crucifixion, when he is, like, beaten and tortured and, and abused for our sake, mind you, because, like, this is a psalm, a song about how God would redeem us, right? Like, because every other song is about how man is distant from God. This is God's solution. Like, the song series ends with God's solution. And its solution is this servant who is marred beyond human semblance. When I think glory, I do not think the guy who gets beat up. Anybody? When I think glory, I do not see, like, the homeless guy who goes around and preaches. Anyone? In fact, in that culture, I, I wear my, my suit and tie today, and it's not. Um, I got a, a couple of really good friends who grew up in a, in a section of the church that believed that if you did not wear a suit to preach in, like, that you could not preach the gospel properly, that it was offensive. Like, that it was unscriptural to not wear a tie, and I have yet to figure out where that's based in scripture. Um, but I, I got friends who like grew up in that, like in the ideas, because you have to be presentable. That's how God is, right? Um, in Jesus' day, the people who were religious people, they wore special costumes so folks knew that they were religious people, right? In our culture, people dress well. Like this is an expectation. In this setting, God surprises the world. And he surprises the world by sending a Savior who would be so low 
born in a barn in the lowest of circumstances, um, a, a woman who was pregnant out of wedlock, right? Um, and in fact, actually, that's something that later, like, like people who oppose Christianity made fun of them for. Oh, your mom wasn't even married when she got pregnant, right? Like, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. It was a miracle, but they mocked it because it was considered to be, like, is this a low state to be in? And actually, when you think about even, like, the God who created the world being physically born and having his diapers changed, this isn't an exalted place. Um, the world wants saviors that are, that are handsome and awesome. I, I, I'm not making fun of him, and I'm not trash-talking him, but, but Tim Tebow is a good choice, right? In theory, he's a great athlete. I'm not going to argue about that. I don't care. Um, but, like, he is this guy. He was a Heisman Trophy winner, and he's a good-looking guy, right? I'm not a judge of this, but ladies? All right. He is a good-looking guy, and he's, like, like well-spoken, and he, you know, he's got all this stuff going for him. He's on the national stage and everything else. This is a hero, Right? This is the kind of hero we can embrace. Um, But that's not how Jesus came. That's not how God set out to save the world. He did not send a beautiful man. He did not send a wealthy man. He didn't send these things. Um, 15 is actually an extension of this. So like having completed his work, so shall he sprinkle many nations. That's the assumption like that he has completed his work because sprinkling the nations is a reference to like his blood like being poured out for the nations right and they're cleansed like we're forgiven because Jesus' blood was shed for us right and so sprinkling the nations is a reference to this forgiveness this reunification and bringing the people back to God and so having affected the entire world from this lowly state I mean when you talk about Israel Israel was the West Virginia of the world right only less nice. It was like South Carolina. <laughs> um, it was a not nice place. And so he was from like nowhere in particular. And he changed the world. And so much so like it's the impressiveness of that that kings will shut their mouths before him. When you leave a king quiet, you've accomplished something, right? He leaves these men in awe for how much he accomplishes. He has changed the course of human history. I read once that um, Handel's Messiah, you all know Handel's Messiah? You know the Hallelujah Chorus? The first time the Hallelujah Chorus was played um, um, in France, Louis Fourteenth, I think, I can't remember which one it was exactly, one of those Louis, there are a lot of French ones. He, he stood up when the Hallelujah Chorus was played. And actually it's become a tradition since that you stand up when the Hallelujah Chorus is played because, like, it's, it's this reverence to God thing. Because even kings stood up at the praise of God. Um, because what Jesus accomplished, this homeless preacher born in a barn, accomplished so much by his being beaten and whipped and willingly dying. Um, how many of our heroes lose on purpose? I can't think of any, right? That's not the way our world works. Our, we, we like winners, um, but Jesus emphasized the opposite. His greatest victory was accomplished not on a war horse, right? Like he didn't ride to his greatest victory on a war horse. He rode on a donkey um, to make fun of the expectation because he was lowly and meek. Um, because of him, so the, the kings will shut their mouths because of him. For that, 
which was, that which has not been told to them they see, and that which they did not have not heard they understand, meaning they knew that he was God based on what he accomplished. He changed the world, and they knew he was something special. Like they knew he accomplished great things. And so we see where um, there's an astonishment at how low he was brought and how much he was exalted. But there's a second meaning to this. And now watch this. Um, how many of y'all want God to step into the world and just fix everything? Man, I want to see the clouds open. I want to see some angels riding out in glory. And I want them to, like, set everything right. Um, I want God to accomplish through might. But what God does instead is he accomplishes through lowliness and humility. And, and like, literally taking the lowest position he could, God accomplishes. And there's a lot of this statement, these two statements, where the weight of it is people are kind of put off by how God does things. Because we want what we want, and we want it to be entertaining when it happens. And what God gives us instead is what he wants. And the people of the world, like in the end, Isaiah is saying, look, they're going to be astonished, but they're going to be astonished because they're going to be put off by how God accomplishes things. Who would, send, who would send a king to be tortured to death? And action heroes are not supposed to lose to the bad guy in the end. They're supposed to win, right? And they're supposed to be good looking. And they're supposed to be, you know, all of these things. And God looks at the expectation of men And he kind of laughs at us and says, I'll do things my way. Now, there's a story. I'm going to break away from the text here. And Oh, my gosh, another rabbit trail. And no, it is not another rabbit trail. This is on purpose. Um, There's a story that was written by Kierkegaard about – Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher um, in the 1700s. He he tells a story about a king. He was one of the most powerful kings – or he was the most powerful king that had ever lived. He was so powerful that other kings would come to him and, like, bow down to show, like, their, their obedience and their fealty to him, right? Like the most powerful king there ever was. Everything he could see and everything in the world was his. And this king one day was walking on the battlements of his castle, surveying the kingdom, everything in all directions and and the glory of it all and how beautiful his his, his world was. And as he's walking, he spies a maiden, just this peasant lady, hanging out in the yard, like doing whatever, you know, laundry or whatever. And she's out there and he sees her and she just catches his eye. Right? And then the next day he sees her again. And the next day he sees her again. And before long he finds himself making excuses to hang out right there and see her. And he finds himself watching her. And he finds himself sending folks around just to figure out what's going on in this lady's life. And he finds out her name. And he finds out. And after months and months of this, he's realized he's fallen completely in love with this peasant woman. And he says, Well, I'm king. Right? It's good to be king. I. I'm going to send the royal entourage down. They're going to bring her to me, and she will be my wife, and it'll be awesome. And right as the royal entourage was lining up with trumpets and fanfare and, and jugglers and whatever else royal fanfare has attached to it, he stops them. He realizes, he's like, oh, my gosh, if I drag her up here to my castle, right, if I drag her up here to my castle, what's she going to do? Say no? Right? I mean, what choice does she have at that point? You live in a hovel. You come into the castle. The most powerful man in the world says, you know, I love you. I mean, that's an offer you can't refuse. That's a huge thing. Like, what's she going to do? Say no? And he realizes, if I bring her here, if I bring her here, she will never, ever really love me. She'll be another subject I'll have. You want a subject, right? I mean, as much as um, 
our culture kind of shifts in that direction for marriage, right? My wife should bring me sandwiches and rub my feet. Um, like, we don't want our, you know, like, I don't want my wife to be like that. I want my wife to love me because she loves me, not to be my servant. Like, that's why I had kids. Um, and so, I'm sorry. I, um, and so the king looks and he says, well, wait a minute. If the castle and all of this stuff is the problem, I'll go to her. And so he gets the royal carriage out, and the entourage is already there, and he gets in the carriage and says, let's go down there. And as he's coming around the bend, like people are coming out, and they hear the horns and everything else, and they're bowing down as he goes by, and he sees her come out and bow down, and he realizes, uh-oh, this ain't going to work. Because if he steps out of the carriage and everybody's bowed down, most of them have never even seen him face to face, and he picks up this one lady out of the crowd and says, you're my wife, what's she going to say? No but then she won't love him. He'll have another servant. He doesn't need servants. He's got plenty of those. He wants a wife. And he gets so desperately ill over this that he stops eating. And he spends weeks like agonizing over the fact that he's in love with this woman, but he can't have her as his wife because, because of who he is. And so in the end, what the king does is he brings all his royal advisors together and he has this big meeting. And on the way out of the palace, he meets a beggar and he trades his clothes with him. No longer the king, but now a beggar. And he goes to win the love of this woman. God could have stepped into this world as anything he wanted to be, right? And actually, if you look at the ancient religions they're full of examples of this. I was reading a, I'm reading a book by a Hindu fellow right now, and he talks about how offended he was by Jesus because um, every one of his gods did huge stuff, right? Like this god came to the world, and he, you know, made the sun, like, dance in the sky, and this god came into the world, and he did this. And, you know, how is Jesus, how, where does he get off just showing up and being a carpenter? But in reality, what God desires of us is not, is not, is not that we be slaves, but that we love him, right? And so what Isaiah tells us is he shows up and he's brought as low as possible. He's not an action hero. He's not a winner. He's a loser. He's poor. And then he rises from the dead and he's glorified, but he's glorified in a way like through the cross, right? And through death. And we look at them and we say, well, how could could God do that? But in reality, God does it because what God desires of you is not that you be his slaves, but that you love him. And weirdly enough, his service comes through love, doesn't it? I don't always want to get up in the morning and go to work. You know why I do it? Because I love my wife and kids. I, I do a lot of things I don't want to do because I love my wife and kids. I do a lot of things you know, that I don't feel like doing because I love y'all. And I love y'all and I love my wife and kids because I love God. Because ultimately I'm happy to be a slave to folks because I love, Right? Babies are the worst tyrants. They can cry out in the middle of the night and you'll jump to their beck and call because you love them. And so it is with God. Like God sends his son so that we'll love him. He sends him as nothing brought low. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? What he's actually saying is like like Isaiah is talking about the prophets. He's saying, hey guys. So many folks have heard us prophets talk and they don't believe us because they're looking for the action hero. And so many people will see the arm of the Lord, meaning Jesus himself, and they won't believe it because God isn't acting the way they expect him to. And I'll tell you what, when God starts acting the way you expect him to and he starts jumping hoops through hoops for you, he ain't God anymore. He's your imagination. God does what he does because he is God. 
And Isaiah tosses it out there. Y'all don't believe me. And then when you see him, you won't believe him. For he grew up before... For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nor beauty that we should desire him. And Isaiah's driving the point home, right? How many of y'all farmers love to see huge crops in the fields? How many of y'all love it when nothing comes out of the ground but one meager little plant? How many of y'all fear that at night? And that's all God sent. He didn't send giant fields full. He sent a sprout struggling to get out between the cracks in the driveway. And we looked and oh man, another one little sprout in my driveway, right? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now the word despised there is funny because we hear despised and we think hate. Right? The Hebrew word that's translated there means dismissed quickly, or we thought nothing of him, or just meh. Right? Oh, I barely even noticed. And that's actually who Jesus was. Like, men looked at him and they passed him over. Um, man, that's the biggest danger of Christmas, ain't it? There's so much to do. I spent half of my week buying Christmas presents, which my wife did most of the work. And I did not really think about how I was trying to give out gifts to signify how God has given us the gift of Christ, his only son. Because we just don't think about it. There's too much other stuff to think about, right? Man, and I can't turn the channel quick enough. I don't want to hear jingle bells. It's easy to forget that that's happy birthday, ain't it? Like in everything that happens around us, this is the life-changing moment where God steps into the world, not in a suit and tie, but in rags. Where God didn't put on his best Sunday clothes, but he put on what we needed so that we could choose, choose, choose to love him. Christmas is the greatest love story in history. Actually, the second greatest. I suppose Easter is probably the greatest one. Well, it's the beginning of the greatest love story in history. Let's put it like that. Um, I, I think I've gone long. I can't see the clock because the tree's in the way. Um, but I, I cannot emphasize this enough, and I, I actually don't care if I've gone long because I cannot say this loud enough. I cannot say this enough times. God loves you so much that he doesn't crush your will. God loves you so much and desires that you love him that he comes to you as a lowly servant and he carries the weight of your sins because he loves you that much. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you've done. He can make it right and he can bring you home because God loves you that much. It's the greatest gift you can possibly receive. My challenge for you this week is to walk out the doors and see in everything around you in all of the pomp and circumstance and glitter and tinsel and everything else. See God's love story like written in history because God desired to draw you close. Um... We're going to close in prayer, but I, I have Christmas ornaments. I give out Christmas ornaments every year because I like giving things away. Um, this year, I, or this week, thank you to, to my wife and to, to um, Roberta. They, they made these. Um, I, have, I have two things. I have baby footprints, and I have crowns. And as you walk out the door today, I want you to grab one up, and I want you to put it somewhere where it's going to remind you of what we're here for, what Christmas is about. It's about God redeeming you. 
It's about God loving you. It's about God romancing you in a way that made it so that you choose to love him. Um, Pick whichever one fits you best. Do you need to remember that God is king? Do you need to remember that God would go low for you because he loves you that much? Take it with you and remember. We're going to close in prayer and I'll let you go because there's a bunch of meetings and stuff. Yes. Actually, we know what love is because God loved us first. Let's uh, pray and we'll do a blessing. Heavenly Father, I pray that pray that you be with us this morning. Help us to remember that your son died for us. Help us to remember and to sing the way that Isaiah sang, that, that you are a God who surprises us by doing what we don't expect. That you, you're a God who surprises us by giving us a gift better than what we wanted and what we're inclined to want. Help us to come low and to recognize that you are worthy of glory and that you are worthy of praise. Help us to sing out to you. Help us to praise you. Help us to walk with you, Lord God. Help us to take the opportunity to go back to the beginning. Um, This redemption through Jesus' suffering.